Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Uh, if you could please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 28. As Josh uh, said, I am a uh, pastor down Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I went to the pastor's college with Matthew, so that's so one of the connections uh, that I have. And uh, it's a joy to uh, stand before you as a tangible example of our unity uh, as a denomination. Uh, so often we meet as elders, and so we're aware of how much we love each other and how much we care about uh, the local churches that make up our region. Uh, but it's, it's a privilege for me, and I was texting this to Matthew this morning, it's a privilege to me that he would entrust um, all of you to me to preach to you. And it's a joy for me to be able to join you this morning in worship and recognize that the same mission we have in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to, to see every man, woman, and child have an opportunity to see and hear the gospel proclaimed to them and demonstrated to them that you too are on that same mission here in the greater Richmond area. And it's that mission together that unites us. It's what we rally around and it's what we believe God has called us to as Sovereign Grace Churches. So it, it's a joy to be here. Uh, the last time I was here, I preached to your youth, I think like eight years ago. I was supposed to preach on a Sunday, but some guy named C.J. Mahaney was going to come in and preach, and so they bumped me, and I have no idea why they would do that. Uh, so they, they bumped me to the youth, and it was a joy to preach to your youth, and now it's a joy to preach to all of you uh, this morning. All right, so Matthew twelve twenty eight through 34. Uh, Mark. Yes, thank you. Uh, I am in Mark, actually. Mark 8, 12, 28 through 34. And this, the title of this morning's message is All-Encompassing Love. Now, I want you to picture for a moment a husband and a wife. And they're, maybe they're in a counseling session or they're in a small group. And the wife is, is desperate to know that her husband loves her. And you know this. And so you ask the husband... You tee him up, trying to help him. Do you love your wife? Do you love her? And the husband responds, yes, I work hard every single day to provide for her. And so you ask him again, do, do you love your wife? And he responds, yes, I manage our finances. I maintain our house and our cars. I, I take out the trash. I clean up after myself. And then, okay, buddy, you're, you're, not, you're not quite getting what I'm after here do you love your wife? And he says, yes, I, I love our kids and I teach them what is right and I lead my family by faithfully attending church and doing family devotions and we serve together in our church and in our community. And you're thinking, man, he, he's not quite getting it. What's he missing? What is he not getting? All these things that he's describing, they're good things. In fact, they're actually commands of God, many of them, but he's missing something. Every husband is smiling and every wife might be groaning because they might have been sitting in this conversation. Don't you know that I love you? Look what I do for you. His, his wife doesn't want his actions, as important as those are, as much as she appreciates those things, more than anything, she wants his heart. She wants to know, she wants to hear from his mouth, I love you. You, I treasure you, I value you. Yes, I do all of these things, but the things that I do for you 
aren't simply to demonstrate this love. They're flowing out of that love. I love you, therefore I take care of the kids and I disciple them and I work hard and I provide and I take care of the cars. She wants to know, do you love me? I don't want simply what you do for me. I want you. I want your heart. I want all of you. And I want you to know, I want, I want to know that you love me. And then what's true is that if she has his heart, what will inevitably follow? His actions. If he loves her, those actions will follow. But all of his actions without his heart are empty. She can have all those things. He can do all of those things. But at bottom, if she does not know that he loves her, they're empty actions. And in this passage, Jesus is battling the religious leaders of his day. Men who knew the law. These, friends, these folks know, knew their Bibles way, way better than all of us know ours. They knew what God required. Men who had given their whole lives to serve and to teach and to lead and and to be uh, priests in the temple. Every detail of their lives was lived in strict observance to God's law, and yet they were missing it. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, was standing before Him, but rather than worshiping Him, they were questioning Him. Remember the passage from just a few weeks back, the parable of the tenants in Mark 12, 1 through 12. The heir of the vineyard had finally come. And rather than listening to him and submitting to him, they resisted him and they questioned him. And in the end, they wanted to kill him. And what Jesus is doing in this passage to them and even to us is he's asking this question. Do you love me? Do you love me? And the answer that he receives from the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes is the same answer that the husband gave. Look at all we do. You want to know how much we love you? Look at what we do. We're the religious leaders. We're the sons of Abraham. We observe the law. And amazingly, in their quest to do all of these things, They believed that Jesus was getting in a way in the way of their obedience. Notice what they're doing. The Son of God is standing before him. And this is what they say to the Son of God. Son of God, you don't understand what we're doing. You're missing it. And what we're doing is actually obeying God. Do you see the irony in that? God, you're in the way of us of doing the right things in order to please God. Jesus, you're in the way. You don't understand. In fact, we want to remove you from this situation. God is standing before them, and they are so obsessed with what they think they are supposed to be doing that they're missing the fact that all of that doing is actually supposed to point them to the very person who's standing in front of them and to love of Him and worship of Him. And so Jesus is trying to get their attention. He's saying to them, listen Friends, you are missing it in the midst of all of your religion and your piety and all of your activities. You're actually failing to love me. All of your doing is fooling you into believing that you are actually loving 
Jesus in this passage is going to get after this fundamental question. And in many ways, it's the same question for the the wife was asking the husband, and I believe it's the same exact question that he has for us. Do you love me? And if friends this morning, our answer to that question is this. Yes, Lord, don't you see all that I do for you? Of course I love you. Look at what I do. If that is your answer to his inquiry, you might be making the same mistake as that husband. And you might be making the same mistake as the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of Jesus today. The main point of the message this morning is this. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily about what we do, but whom we love. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not primarily about what we do, it is about whom we love. The religious leaders and all of us, for that matter, can often approach Christianity as a list of things to do. For instance, if someone were to walk up to you and ask you this, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? How would you answer that question? Would you answer a a Christian dresses this way, modestly, talks this way, never swears, reads their Bible, prays, goes to church, goes to small group, parents this way, watches this kind of movie, and listens to this kind of music? What is the Christian about? He's about these things. He's about these activities. This is what defines what it is to be a Christian. If that's how we would answer, we need to hear this message this morning. Because that is not how Jesus answers the question of this scribe. Jesus is going to help us to see in this passage that he is interested not in our religious observance, as important as those things are. He's interested in our love for him and in our love for others. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily about what we do. It is about whom we love. Let me pray for us this morning before we read this passage. Father, thank you that your word is powerful and your spirit is present. And that through the proclamation of your word, you draw us to yourselves. You reveal yourself to be glorious and good. And I ask, Father, that through the preaching of your word this morning, that you would draw us to yourself. Help us to see more clearly who you are through Jesus Christ, so that we might love you. So that more than anything, we might delight in you. So that when the question is asked, do you love me? That each of us can say, oh, Father, we love you and we delight in you and you satisfy our souls. And out of that, we obey you. Father, do that through the preaching of your word this morning in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So let's read together. Mark 12, 28 through 34. Says this, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, speaking of Jesus, seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, 
Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, this group that makes up all of the religious leaders of the day. And so you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. And a way of picturing, picturing this is uh, to think of our Congress and our Supreme Court. So think of it this way. The Pharisees are kind of the Republicans. They're the ones who have a conservative, constructionist view of the law. We're going to stick to what we believe the Constitution says. And the Sadducees would be akin to Democrats, more of a liberal and progressive and a living document approach to how the law ought to work. So you have these two parties who view the Constitution and law in this way. And then you have the scribes, who are sort of like the Supreme Court, and they're the interpreters of the law, the ones who kind of have the final say on what we think this law actually means. And so you have these three parties that all make up the Sanhedrin and are a part of the religious landscape of the day. And now normally these groups are bickering among themselves, not unlike the current climate that we live in. We're arguing about how this ought to be, to be handled And Jesus, actually, in the last passage that Adam preached on last week, he cleverly plays off of this. So he knows there's a dispute between the Pharisees and the Sadducees about the resurrection. So he throws out the resurrection, and so the enemy of my enemy becomes my friend kind of situation. He plays them off one another. And then Jesus says even earlier in Mark, where he's talking about this parable of the tenants, he looks at this whole group of guys, and he says, actually, you guys are all missing it. Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, you're all in bad shape. None of you see that I am the true and living God, and none of you are actually following me. And so he begins to confront them, and they get ticked off at him because he insults them. And so they start peppering him with these questions because they want to stump him, and they want to to prove that he is not the Son of God and that he's just some foolish teacher. And so they they start peppering him with questions about the law, trying to trap him. And so now we have the scribes this morning in our passage. So like I said, they're master interpreters of the law. And a key way they interpreted the law was by dividing it up. So there are 600, and they divided it up into these heavy and light commandments, and there are 613 of these commandments that they've discovered from the the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so there are 613 things. There are 365 things we shouldn't do and 248 things that we should do, making 613 laws. This is how the scribes approached it. And within all these 613, there are heavier ones, weightier ones, and there are, are lighter ones. And, and we know that this is true. Like, obviously, there's a hierarchy in law. So, so I, get, I get pulled over for a speeding ticket. I'm breaking the law. 
I murder someone, I'm also breaking the law, but one of them is weightier than the other. And so they look at the law and they say there are weighty ones and there are lighter ones. Murder, obviously, according to the book of Moses, first five books, you die. Adultery, you die. Idolatry, you die. So they have other laws in there that are like, this is how you clean the mold out of your house. And, and this is how you're supposed to wash yourself after this thing happens. So they've got lighter ones just like we do and heavier ones. And so they divided the law up just like that. And I tell you all this to inf- because it informs the question that the scribe asks. So look in verse 28. You can hear this. He's asking. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? This master of the law had been listening to Jesus' previous answers. And he says, you answer wisely. He's impressed. And he approaches him and he he asks a fitting question for a scribe. Which is the most important law of all? What's the weightiest one? We've got 613. Which, Jesus, do you believe is the weightiest and the most important law of all? So this is the background and the kind of the setting for this passage. And our first point from this passage is this. It's going to be derived from Jesus' answer. And point number one is this an all encompassing love. All encompassing love. Here's how Jesus answers that question. Read with me again verses 29 through 31. Which commandment is the most important? What's the weightiest one, Jesus? And Jesus answers The most important one is this. The most weighty one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So let's start with a couple quick observations from these verses. The scribe asks for a commandment, singular, one. What's the weightiest one? But Jesus responds with two commandments. But notice what Jesus does at the end of verse 31. There is no other commandment singular greater than these, plural. So Jesus takes these two commands and he says they are so important and that they are so intertwined that they are two commandments, but together they make the one great commandment. So he says, you can't have one without the other. You ask me for one, I'm going to give you two, but really they are one commandment. You must love God and you must love others. And they are the one great commandment. So the first of these two commandments, most important, hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. And now every Jew would have known this commandment. It's called the Shema. It's what every faithful Jew would recite in the morning and would recite in the evening. This is sort of their prayer. It's their Lord's Prayer of the New Testament, if you want to think of it that way. Every Jewish person knew this. And it begins with this proclamation. It's like, hear ye, hear hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is our covenant God. He is related to us and he's given us the law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the one true God. And through him, he has given us his law to know how to obey him and to love him and to worship him. And through him, we have redemption. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it says, you shall. So in in light of 
who he is and what he has done, you shall do these things. The one true God is commanding us to do something. You shall love the Lord your God in this way, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Notice the, the four alls there. It's not living, loving with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a weightiness. He wants to drive it home with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And different commentators go into what the heart, soul, mind, and strength mean. And the problem is, which is very typical of commentators, is they never agree with one another. So you think, I've got a question and I need an answer and they give you five and you actually had, I had one and they give me more answers than I know what to do with. And so you're, you're, you're left not actually knowing much more from all of these commentators. So Here's what the bottom line actually is. We are commanded to love God with an all-encompassing, unconditional, unreserved, all-inclusive, total love that permeates every facet of our being. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. However you want to define what we are, we're going to cover all four of those and we're going to say all of it. Everything. Everything all-encompassing love. And we're, we're commanded to love Him in a way, it's like it oozes out of us, out of our very being, our thought and our minds and our heart, which is our affections and our love and the physical activities that we participate in. Every facet is to be encompassed in this love for God. And it's clear that Although Jesus intertwines these two commandments, they're still a priority. He does start off with first and then second. First, love God, and then second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we know instinctively that loving God is what we're supposed to do. Like, what am I supposed to do is love God. Like, okay, not surprising. But have you ever been puzzled by the fact that God, in His Word, places... Love of others, not as before our love for God, but in some sense on par with it and so intertwined with it that they can't be separated. Do you wake up each morning and think, I need to love God and just as important, I need to love others? Most probably, I, I don't. Most love God and then, okay, I know there are all these people around me and I should probably like them. Like, it's important, and yeah, like, otherwise I'm going to have to talk to God about it and all that. They're, he placed them on par. And here's the reason. In whose image are we made? God's. Created in the image of God. You are created in His image, and when we love one another, we are loving someone who is created in the image of God, therefore is a reflection of who God is. And to hate one another is to hate someone created in the image of the very God that we are called to love. In fact, God sees these two commands so tightly woven together that we can hear him say to us in 1 John 4, 20 and 21, these words, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has... If, excuse me. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves must also love his brother. God is saying, look, if you hate a person who is created in the image of God, the person who's standing right in front of you, 
You cannot possibly love the God that you cannot see. They are that intertwined. How we love one another reveals how we love God. And if anyone says that he loves God but hates his brother, God's word is clear. He is a liar. Whoever loves God must love his brother. Jesus says these two loves for God and neighbor are the commands upon which all other commands are built. And the question for us this morning is this. Are we obeying them? Are we obeying them? Do you love God with an all-encompassing love? If it's to permeate our entire being, every facet of who we are, is there any facet of who you are that you are withholding from God? I love you, God, but I, I love this too. Mm, I love this. Is there anything? He's calling for all of us, all of our being, everything. Is there anything that you are withholding from God? Any love, any affection that you are reserving for something other than God that is not under God and directed towards God. If love of God is to be oozing out of us, if it is to be overflowing, what's the status of your love towards Him? Is it sort of full? Is it dry? Is it overflowing? Some this morning might be overflowing. Praise to God. Where is your affection? Where is your love for God not translating into love of your neighbor? Do you love your spouse as yourself? Your friends? Your co-workers? Co-workers can be hard. Your neighbors? They can be hard too. Those who don't know Jesus, do you have a love of Christ for the lost? Your kids, your parents, your siblings, your fellow believers in this church? Is there any area, any relationship where you are loving yourself more than you love them? Where you would say, right now, what is more important to me in this relationship is me. My desires, my wants, my comforts, me. And you are exchanging the love of neighbor for love of self. Do you say that you love God while openly and knowingly not loving your neighbor? Jesus says you can't have one without the other. Can't say, we can't say that we love him and at the same time hate someone else. He says, it simply cannot be. If we aren't loving our neighbor, we are not truly loving God. Is there, is there a person that you know that you do not love and you are excusing that and you are believing that that is okay and somehow disconnecting from what God's word clearly says, which is, it's not okay. To love him is to love them. And to openly and unrepentantly not love them 
is to not love God. Is there anyone right now where that is true? It's all-encompassing love is a little daunting, isn't it? I can feel the weight. I feel the weight. I have faces. Do you have faces? You can think of them. It requires all of us. I can think of things I love and people that I do not love that separate me from the love of God. And I'm sure that's true of you. This is the great commandment we are all called to obey and the great commandment upon which all other commandments rest. But how does this commandment relate to all the rest? How does it relate to the rest of our Christian lives? And so that brings us to point number two, which is this. Point number two, love and the law. Love and the law. So here I was, here's how the scribe responds to Jesus' words. Let's read 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's what he said. You're right, teacher. You get it. You have spoken truly. And these are words of respect. Of all the people who've peppered Jesus with questions, here's a man who's actually starting to get it. To call him teacher is to be respectful to him. He repeats the great commandments and then he adds a key phrase, to love all this, to love in these all-encompassing ways is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And this is the key to understanding the second point. Burnt offerings and sacrifices are part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So let me explain this to you. So before Christ came, God gave the people of Israel a system of sacrifices that were meant to point to the future once-for-all sacrifice that Christ made. And so there are blood sacrifices that you, you offer to atone for sin and a burnt offerings that are consumed by God. And then there are also like food and fellowship offerings where you offer a portion, but then you sit down and have a meal, not unlike the meal that we will have today in the presence of God. So there are different kinds of sacrifices. And the burnt offerings and the burnt sacrifices are the most precious of these sacrifices because they're the ones that are offered wholly unto God that we get no part of. And they're atoning sacrifices. And so what this scribe is, is saying that the most precious acts of devotion in the Old Testament law are actually secondary to this all-encompassing Love. What the scribe is saying is that love of God and neighbor is more important than even the most sacred duty that you can perform under the law. The most sacred duty. Did you catch that? Love of God and neighbor is more important than any sacred duty any of us can perform. In fact, all of our sacred duties have no meaning apart from the first and foremost duty, which is love of God and love of neighbors. Paul says as much in 1 
Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. So we all know this, 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. We know this, uh, but what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is he's dealing with a church that's really jazzed about their spirituality. And they think they're awesome. We speak in tongues more than everyone else. We have prophecy. It sounds like they're total crazy meetings where everything's out of order. But man, we're spiritual. We've got this. And so this is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I do all this cool stuff that you're doing, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, which they boasted about, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, if I am martyred, and yet have not love, I gain nothing. Paul and the scribe are saying the same thing. Friends, we can perform the most sacred duties that we know to perform as Christians. And yet, if we do not have love for God and love for others, our actions, our duties, miss it entirely and in fact bear nothing for us. To use the thinking of the scribe, if we are capable, which we're not, of obeying 611 of the 613 commands, but negate or, 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 or dance around the first two, it's as though we've disobeyed them all. That's what it's saying. First two, so important that all the others hang on those two great commandments. That's what Jesus says in Matthew in a parallel passage. All the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So if you do not love God and you do not love neighbor, all things fall off of that. There's nothing to hang on. Miss it entirely. You might be asking, well, what about obedience then? I'm still supposed to do things, right? To be a Christian, there is obedience, isn't there? Uh, it does, I'm supposed to be obedient. I'm supposed to be holy, right? Yes, absolutely. I am not negating that. Obedience does matter. But our obedience must be preceded by and flow out of a love for God and a love for our neighbor. Let me say that again. Our obedience must be preceded by and flow out of a heartfelt and all-encompassing love for God and our neighbor. The problem with the religious leaders of Jesus' day is that they thought obedience was enough. They thought that's what it was about. Yet they had missed the weightiest commandment of all, they had studied that law and they'd weighed every single one and ordered it and they knew every detail of everything and yet they had missed the weightiest of all. Friends, obedience is not the basis for love. Love is the basis for obedience. Without love, our obedience is empty and it is a vain exercise. But when we love God and when we love our neighbor, obedience will flow out of that. It, that hard person that you might have thought of when I asked you about loving your neighbor. How many times have you probably already tried to gin up your affection for them? a child or a parent or a sibling or a friend or a neighbor. 
just pushing ourselves to obey doesn't create any affection for that. But what this is saying is, is, oh, you know the love of God? You know what He's done for you? You you understand the mercy you have received? And you see the glory of who He is and all that He has given us freely to overflowing? Friends, that's something you can draw from when you're working with someone that's really hard because you realize, I'm really hard and this is how God's treated me. I've received mercy. I've experienced His love. I know what this is to receive what I do not deserve. And therefore, it doesn't matter about their deserts, what they deserve. You're drawing from a, a resource that's totally different. Totally different. Wholehearted love for God will overflow into love of neighbor and will overflow into obedience. It will always yield wholehearted obedience. I wouldn't be surprised if this line of thinking is probably tweaking some of you. Tweaks me. By nature, we seem to be drawn to rules. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people, I know, I know, I know. Just tell me what you want me to do. Have you ever said that? I've said that. I hear this all the time. Just, what do you want me to do? Outward compliance, certain cultural markers, certain Christian behaviors are can be so... It's so easy for them to be the earmarks of what it is to be a Christian. What's it to be a Christian? Do these things. And we're even further conditioned to do this when we've grown up in a Christian culture. The South, Bible Belt, Christian home. And so we we easily fall into the trap of maintaining exterior appearances all the while remaining distant from God in our hearts. We can inadvertently become hypocrites. We can become the hypocrites we so easily criticize in Scripture. How many times have you looked at the Pharisees and thought, geez, these guys are idiots? Come on. Don't you get it? But friends, Jesus gives us this passage not so that we can identify with Jesus. We're not Jesus. You ever notice how we always identify with the good guy in the story? We're the Nathan, we're the prophet talking to David. You know, we're the Jesus in there. If we were there, we would have seen it. No, friends, we're the Pharisees, we're the scribes, we're the Sadducees. We're the Sadducees who take light the law of God. We're the Pharisees who think we can gain God's favor by obeying it. And we're the scribes who think if we're just fastidious enough, we can make ourselves right with God by doing the right things. We're those people. (laughs) He's talking to us. Ask yourself, how do you measure your maturity as a believer? How do you judge the maturity of others? What are your earmarks for what it is to be a true disciple of Christ? Jesus, time and again, measures those he interacted with and us, not by our external observance and compliance, but by our love for him and for one another. Friends, we can fake externals, but we simply cannot fake love. You can't. You can't fake love and affection. 
You can't. We all know it. Don't you know it? You know it. I can all day stand up here and do the right things. Make it look good. Shade things. Put up the facade. Create the Facebook personality. Looks great. But friends, when you hang out with me and you watch me with my wife and my kids, you're going to know one way or another whether that love is real or whether it's fake. You'll know. You'll know. We can't fake it. Love is far too costly and far too difficult, and it doesn't reside in us, and it requires that we have it from somewhere else, which means we have to have love of him before we can love them. You can't fake it. You can't fake it. This brings me to our final point this morning. Point number three, teacher or savior? Do we need a teacher or do we need a savior? Let's read verse 34 together. Verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, speaking of the scribe, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Jesus saw the wisdom of this scribe's statement. He recognized that this scribe was beginning to understand what it was to truly love God and to trust him and to follow him. He was beginning to see that obedience to the law without love wasn't actually obedience at all. And more than anything, God was after worship not sacrifice. He was getting it. So Jesus says these things to him. But Jesus sort of makes a cryptic comment. You are not far from the kingdom of God. The scribe was near, but he wasn't quite in the kingdom of God. The scribe recognized Jesus' wisdom. He says, you're a great teacher. He respected him. The lights were beginning to come on, but they hadn't come all the way on. Jesus requires more than that, though. He requires our admiration and respect, but he wants far more than that. The, the scribe respects him, but he does not yet worship him. And there's a difference. The scribe was close, but he was, what he was missing is that God had called him to love him. And the very God who had called him to love God and love neighbor was actually standing in front of him. He'd not quite seen it yet. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Yes, Yahweh. But what he didn't quite grasp was God was in front of him. And he did not simply require his admiration and respect. He required his worship. And the reality is that all of us are required to have more in our hearts than respect. We are required to worship. And this demand of obedience in the area of worship, if you aren't recognizing it yet, we are utterly incapable of fulfilling in our own strength. The weight that you feel, good. That's the weight of the law that you and I are incapable of actually fulfilling. We should feel that weight. What you're asking for, Nick, is impossible. I can't do this. It's impossible. Love him with an all-encompassing love and love every neighbor as I love myself. I can't possibly do this. 
We so fall short of it. We do not love Him as we ought. We are an idolatrous people. We love so many other things. We love so many other things. And so if we come to Jesus solely as teacher, we walk away with the law. Teach me what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm supposed to do. Can you do it? No. Friends, we need more than a teacher. We need a Savior who can actually make possible the very demands that He places upon us. You see, the only person who's ever fulfilled this great commandment to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love neighbor as himself is Christ Himself. Only He has ever loved God in this way. Only Jesus has ever actually loved neighbor as Himself. In fact, more than Himself. He loved us as His neighbor so much that He was willing to die for us and to save us from the requirements of the law that would only condemn us apart from a Savior. Jesus came. He loved God perfectly. He lived the life that we could never live. And then he loved us by dying for us in our place. The weight that you feel is the weight of the law that apart from Jesus Christ would be the condemning weight of the law upon you. Because eventually we would have to stand before him and he would ask us these simple questions. Have you loved me with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all of your strength? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And our answer would unequivocally be, no, I cannot meet what the law demands. And friends, if that's all we've got, we're done. That's it. It's over. It's judgment and condemnation. The scribe was near, but he was not in. Because Jesus remained a teacher and had not yet become his Savior. And friends, the question is, where are you in that spectrum? Do you still see Jesus as the good guy who teaches you how to live so you can have a happy life? And if I just follow these things, then things will work for me. I really want a happy marriage. I really want a happy family. I really want a happy life. And I, if I work hard and I take Dave Ramsey and I'll save and I can be happy and if I tithe, the chances are he'll give me some stuff too. Is that what you think this is? Oh, friends, one persecution will purge the church of all of that. That doesn't stand up. Because when all of that stuff's taken away, what are we left with? What he requires of us is our worship. And he's made that worship possible. Because what he says is, when all that's taken away, one thing will remain. And it is me. And if you cling to me and what my son has done, you will have my love which will sustain you. And you will have an overflowing love because you've tasted of my love that will love neighbor. You want me to say that again? I don't know if I can say that again. I don't remember. Uh, (laughs) Friends, all of us are sort of puzzled by the direction that our country is going in. And all of us are saying we better be careful because God's going to judge us. Friends, God's judgment is already upon us. What do you think we're in? 
He's turning us over to the very things that we desire. And we're watching it played out before us. And friends, we're being pushed to the periphery. And with that will come pain and persecution and suffering that are promised in God's word and are actually what characterized the lives of many Christians for centuries. And we just have never tasted it. Friends, the only thing that's going to sustain us in those moments isn't the good life that Christianity promises. It is a love of God that endures for all eternity. And that's what he's offering. Because if it's just the law and doing the right stuff, it won't be worth it when persecution comes and when difficulty comes. And when inevitable suffering and affliction comes, which comes to all of us because we live in a broken and fallen world that is not yet heaven, it will come. And I promise you, the only thing that will sustain us is the fact that we know God and we love him and we love others because we've first been loved by him. So here's the question. Do you love him? And do you love others? And if you see a gap between the love you are called to for him and for others, the solution is not to do more things, but to turn to him in repentance and faith and receive his love and forgiveness and mercy again. And in the glorious goodness of that, Turn to others with love and follow hard after him in obedience. That's what he's calling us to.